Okay, so uh, last week we we did the part two and talked about uh, the translation uh, possibilities and the issues surrounding the word eternal and eternity and stuff like that. Uh, I, I need to make sure everybody understands I'm not against eternity. I'm all for it. I think eternity is wonderful. I I do think, though, that there's something to be gained by, by uh, considering the way we use words, okay? So this is, this is what this meant. Might the words you choose make a difference in how you think about the life to come? And we've spent a lot of time laying some foundational groundworks for the life to come, right? I mean, really a long time. Uh, uh, some would say, yeah, really a long time. So anyway, I'm going to review these key points. Just, pardon me? You said like forever. Like forever. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 been eternal almost. It has actually been eternal in the true literal sense of the uh, word olam. Okay, so these are some key points that we've covered in the last four months or so. Okay, and I was going back, kind of digging up when the timing was. The whole thing that 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 the terminology that we gained when we looked into NT Wright stuff, we were talking about. Uh, could we release forgiveness? You remember those two girls that tore the tore the uh, restaurant up in England? I, I haven't. I I got some stuff was able to follow, but that fell out of the news, so I don't know what happened. I'm hoping they all repented. Uh, at least they had the chance because we were all releasing forgiveness on a member. So that and it it was coming, flowing out of this image bearing, uh, the the restoration of our status as image bearers that Jesus did on the cross, the overcoming of the, the hiding and the, the lying and all this kind of stuff. And the way, uh, way N.T. Wright says it is, is on that Good Friday evening, everything changed. Everything in the cosmos changed because of what Jesus was doing. So, new creation. And then it opens up the door to see the value of people. Because regardless of whether somebody knows it or not, if they are a human species, they are made in the image of God. This isn't something that's conditional. God declared that uh, as His purpose, and He fulfilled that purpose in the creation of Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve actually, he, he fulfilled that in the making of man, male and female made He them. And then we get the details in Genesis two. But people need us to see them as as valuable as they are, and we don't have to do it through a lot of psychological and social tricks. We can do it because we know they're made to reflect the image of God. And sometimes, Alan, like you're talking about, they don't know it, and they need us to bless them. Or, even worse yet, you see somebody who's uh, in, a, in the public eye, let's say a political figure or something, and they are abusing their authority and their, the, the gift of leadership that's been given to them. That doesn't mean that that, that isn't something that's still from God. And there's some more teaching that I want to do out of uh, John chapter 3, where at the end of John chapter 3, as Jesus is talking about, this is uh, judgment, that light has come into the world. The last line says something really special. It says, so that they may know, or so that their deeds may be shown to have been wrought in God. Made in God. And, the, you know, th- that's following the section that says men... Uh, love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to be exposed. But there's something even about the the abusive, wicked, horrible things that we use our image-bearing authority to do that flows out of, in a twisted and a perverse, damaged way, flows out of the authority that we've been given, the creative authority 
the various ways that we recommend or we uh, imitate God. So, or reflect God. Anyhow, big deal. Uh, also, we want to have a Jesus and, and recognize that He's the Creator and Sustainer of all, according to Hebrews chapter one, uh, uh, according to Colossians, where uh, you know He made made everything according to the Gospel of John, where the Word uh, everything was made by Him and nothing was made without Him. So He brought His authority here, and He's carrying that authority into eternity on our behalf. So He is the center of eschatological hope. Last day's hope. Future life hope. Okay? Second, the God who created is the same God that's going to define the age to come. And that God is spirit, fire, light, and a double dose of love. He is the one around whom the ages to come are defined. It is not, sin has never been given a defining vote in creation. It's caused all kinds of trouble. It's had to be accommodated for, but it's never been endowed with the authority to define creation. And we, if you, if you doubt that, look at the end of, of Corinthians chapter 15 or toward the latter part of it, so that God will be all in all. Death is going to be no more. Uh, the wages of sin is death. The whole sin issue is going to be resolved. And uh, I don't know all the details of that, but I know that it has not been given an equal voice with righteousness. We looked at the, the severity of Gehenna versus the hopelessness of hell. And obviously I can leave everybody to make their own, their own uh, beliefs and position on that. But what I want us to keep in mind is that Jesus... Jesus literally could not have been using the word hell. It, had, it didn't exist in any of the vocabularies that he had at the time. So it came later. So he was talking about the word he used. And the word he used was Gehenna, and Gehenna was horrible. And in a lot of ways, it's way more horrible than the image that we have used contemporarily of hell. And you, 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 know, you could think, well, how could it be worse than that? Because it was about the, the, the abuse of Love, the abuse of worship, the destruction of family, and being led that way by the very people that you were entrusted to, the priest and the religious leaders of the day. And they took those practices into the very temple itself. And so Jesus was warning against us leaning on something other than relationship with the Father. So, again, is a big deal. Keep that in mind. And then also... Placing our hope in righteousness and transformation instead of, of just injustice and in vengeance. Okay? Don't want to beat that dead horse too much more. Uh, punishment versus discipline and the consuming fire that is God. And all we really have to remember about that is kind of back up to the one that the God who's there. That God is consuming fire. So he doesn't have to kindle a fire over here in a trash can to fix things. He may. We didn't have to, because just by opening his arms and saying, come to me, you're walking through the fire. Okay, you guys are nodding your head. That's kind. Uh, the light that is judgment is a person, right? God is light. God is light. And light has come into the world. And Jesus is that light. 
The Father manifests that light. The Holy Spirit is that light, and you can see it all. You can also see fire in all of them too, right? If you think about the biblical images. And lastly, that opens all this stuff opens the door to possible options for a biblically honest way to think about the future, and it might be different. Okay, so that's that's where we've been, and that's what led us to discuss the word eternity. And then there's this: I'm proposing just for the sake of thinking about it, that there's two general frameworks for each, for the age to come that we can think about. And I corrected them uh, on my thing, so or pretty much anyway. So we have one side that is very, very common, obviously, theologically in our culture. It's eternal conscious torment. It's where the afterlife is separated into two destinations, and the decisions about those two destinations are finalized on earth. And one of those destinations is the throne of God, the throne of grace. It's the eternal bliss. The other is that whole thing represented by the fire and darkness and hell. And in most theologies that correct that, all the concepts of those things are blended together. Outer darkness, torment, fire, lake of fire, all that kind of stuff. The other one is a more active kind of idea about heaven. It emphasizes the fact that uh, Jesus uh, led captivity captive. It emphasizes the fact that things went on after the death of the people uh, who were in the flood at the time of Noah. There's scripture that talks about uh, the gospel being preached to them or the word being spoken to them by, by the Lord himself. So there's, there's stuff. Um, the point is, you may, in fact, you do, have a choice about what you want to believe and what you think the Scripture teaches. And I want it to be a biblically honest one. So that gets us to tonight. Translation choice and the impact on meaning. And basically we're talking about the difference between the word eternal and the word age or the to the age or age to come. And so we're going to wrap it up tonight. Uh, I'm 100% certain, and I just want to give you permission to make some thought about that. The mic is open. We, you guys, last week when I when I taught, I don't think I gave off the vibe that I didn't want any questions, but there weren't any, which tonight I super encourage you. If you have a question, if you have a doubt, if you have uh, a joke, <laughs> Let's take the time, okay? Because we'll, we'll get through this pretty quickly. So uh, I want to have some thoughts and possibilities, uh, but first I want to give you an example about the importance of words to contain a range of meaning or to restrict a range of meaning. And I was kind of kicking this around, and I came up with this example, the Bronze Age. Now, I don't know if anybody, how many of you are like super versed in, in the details of the Bronze Age? So you won't know whether I'm like halfway off or just blowing smoke or anything. Okay, cool. I'm going to go for it then. All right. So it was it was roughly around uh, 3,000 to 3,500 BC. There's different places uh, in some of the more temperate climates. It seemed to come earlier for whatever reason, and and uh, obviously it had to do with bronze, which had to do with tin and copper. And so those natural resources that were available in certain geographic locations, people discovered those and they found them. And those are both relatively low heat uh, alloy 
type thing, but the, the metal that comes from copper and tin when it's alloyed is called bronze, and it's much, much harder than both of those are, or either of those are. And so the, the Bronze Age came after what was called Neolithic Age or the Stone Age. So this is a long time ago. And the Stone Age was characterized by the fact that most implements for uh, anything resembling farming or weapons or personal utility were made of stone and wood. And uh, the Bronze Age supplanted those with uh, instruments and, and things made of bronze. So uh, it followed the Stone Age and it preceded the Iron Age. The Iron Age started around 1300 or so BC. Okay? So, uh, obviously, the first big thing that made the Bronze Age the Bronze Age was the development of bronze. And it was the beginning of metallurgy that later got much more advanced with, with in the Iron Age. But for that amount of time, you know, 15, 18, uh, 100 years, this was a big, big deal. And the way most of the people thought about it, or I thought about it, like, so these are like uh, bronze uh, weapons and defensive weapons and stuff that are in the University of Oxford Museum. Uh, and they're, these, I believe, were actually uh, excavated from that period of time. And the Bronze Age took hold in uh, Asia, in China. It took hold in the Mesopotamian Valley. And it took hold in... Um, Northern Europe and some of those tribes, uh, the, the old Celtic tribes, and, and then the later Bronze Age hit up in the Norse country. And also, did I say Egypt? I did. Okay, anyway, that's enough. Uh, so, but it wasn't just bronze, and this is the part I want to go. So we're talking about the Bronze Age. But there's more to talk about in the Bronze Age than bronze. Okay? Uh, it was the beginning of urbanization and civilization. The Mesopotamian civilization emerged. The, the um, Egyptian civilization emerged. And uh, they were still pretty tribal up in the Celtic areas in the north. But uh, there's another one that I don't remember right now. Uh, anyway, second and related, and you can start to see how these connect, there was advancements in agriculture, partly because they created a plow, a metal plow, a bronze plow. They also created a tool called a scythe. Remember that? It's a big circular deal. It changed the way you harvested grain, and obviously the plow changed the way that you process grain. You didn't have to go along with a sharp stick and stone and dig individual holes. And so... What also happened was they, the first, and think about this, this is like a trip. The first irrigation concepts and systems ever in the world happened during the Bronze Age. And partly that was because some of it, you, you had instruments that were capable of digging, like the canals that would get the water there. You had, you know, that kind of stuff. And then that led to mass cultivation. And you can see how that related to the urbanization, right? Because now you, you have the ability to feed a large crowd of people. You don't have to spend all your time just feeding you and your eight kids and your uncle and your grandpa. Or five kids, four, eight, whatever. It doesn't matter. How many ever kids you got? Yeah, you know. Because kids got to eat even back in the Bronze Age. But so this, this idea of urbanization and the growth of civilization, literally, 
for other reasons too. So that was the agricultural thing. And believe it or not, there's a little bit of dispute on when the, the very, very first concept of the wheel came, but the bronze, uh, the technology of the Bronze Age allowed for much more precise work on things like the axle holes and axle shafts and stuff like that. And so uh, the, the invention of the wheel is credited in the, in the Bronze Age. And uh, the, the oldest ones that anybody's found um, varies a little bit. It's about 3,500 from Mesopotamian Valley. But there was also wheels being built up in the tribal areas of northern England and, and Wales and stuff like that. But anyway... And, and in case you didn't know, the invention of the wheel was kind of like a big thing. The earliest wheels weren't for vehicles. They were potter's wheels, and that changed a whole bunch of that stuff. But nevertheless, it was because of the complexity that could be built. Um, the emergence of trade networks and large-scale trading goods happened because of the, the Bronze Age, in the Bronze Age, and you can see why. Because now you have a whole bunch of people getting together. They're mass farming, and so you can actually, because God's good, right, you can produce more than you use, and it, it, you begin to trade. But it's also because some other things began to happen. Monumental style architecture just blew up in this area. And in the Bronze Age, because of tool techniques, because of other things like that that it enabled, the Great Wall of China was built. The Pyramids of Giza were built. It's amazing. And the ziggurats in Mesopotamia, which interestingly enough is the story of the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And so I'm going to have to do some more research into the history line, but you know, followed after the flood, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But the, uh, uh, it was a ziggurat type structure that God said, not people, these guys are going to, they're trying to build a, a tower to reach into heaven and they're going to be able to do it. So now if it had been me saying that or just some other biblical writer, maybe you kind of go, ah, I don't know, but God said it. So I don't know. And you can tell how tall a ziggurat was going to be because they found the foundations and you can only build something so steep. So anyway, it's pretty cool. Heaven's not quite as far away as we think. And men discovered that in the bronze age. But anyway, uh, how about this for a big deal? The first writing systems, cuneiform writing and Egyptian hieroglyphics emerged during the Bronze Age. Writing systems were different than just cave paintings. They were different than just uh, sort of snapshot illustrations. They were actually writing systems like is represented on this, this uh, tablet, clay tablet down here. And you can see that even though you could do that with sticks, and I'm sure there was a lot of writing and assist, it's probably because of the precision that you could do by hammering out that bronze and shaping it and doing something like that. Anyway, writing systems. How big a deal is that? Civilization. You can see why it was starting to change, right? Things were beginning to be caught and captured. And then lastly, this was the outbreak of lasting and unique cultural representations and cultural art. This is a, a, a um, ceremonial cup from the uh, Zhang Dynasty, Shang Dynasty, Shang Dynasty in China during the Bronze Age. 
And if you couple that, look back up here, that all of a sudden trade routes start happening and exchanges start happening. Can you imagine people who traded uh, uh, an artifact like that, a bronze-created type deal because of the detail? Uh, soldering was first invented during this time, too. That's why you can have some of these really complicated, like, uh, metal craft because you don't have to do them all by mold anymore. You can solder pieces to them and stuff. It would happen during Bronze Age. Anyway, so people that had never seen an elephant, for instance, could now be exposed to that and, and the whole ex idea of cultural exchange and thought and everything like that and, and unique cultural expressions. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So that's the Bronze Age. A lot more than just bronze, right? Okay. So, age defines a period of time, but it remains open to multifaceted content. And that's the only reason I wanted to go through this, and plus I thought it was cool. Age defines a time. And it can define it. And remember, we talked about it, right? Uh, the life of a servant... Uh, the three days Jonah was in the belly of the whale, forever and ever. Age defines a time. Any questions yet before I go on? Thoughts? No? Yes? Okay. So do you think eternal does that as well? And I would propose to you, no. Just as a word. I'm not saying that there's not diversity in eternity. There surely should be. We, but but the, 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 when, you, when, you, when you stamp something with eternal, it, it, it's like a finished stamp. It's, it, it, I mean, I didn't grow up thinking eternal was progressive. Nobody ever explained to me how you got from progressive to not being progressive and being eternal, but nevertheless, that's the way I thought about it. So let's look at a few scriptures and see. Okay, now this is building on what we looked at last week when we looked into uh, the raw definitions of Olam, Aeon, and Aeonios as being age. Okay, age is the, is the basic fundamental definition. Uh, or uh, some of the subcategories of it are like a fixed point on the horizon, a destination, and or a fixed point in the past, like the Bronze Age, okay, where it has boundaries. But uh, this is in the beginning. The first use of the word olam is in Genesis 22. And, and so Young's literal doesn't translate it eternal. It translates it with some form of age thing. And it's a little awkward sounding, but this one isn't too bad. And Jehovah God said, Lo, the man was one of us. This is just really talking about right after the fall as to the knowledge of good and evil, and now lest he send forth his hand and have taken also of the tree of life and lived to the age. New American Standard says and lives forever. Now, I don't find too big a conflict between those two concepts with what I think the story was telling, and it's why God put the cherubim and ushered Adam and Eve out of the garden because they didn't want them going back eating the tree of life and living in the condition that they had perpetually. So, you know, but that, so I don't have a big bone to pick with forever there as a translation, but you can see that to the age fits just as well. Yes, Ronnie. So this brings up a concept of something that took me a little while to figure out. There's a pun right there, pun, time. Um, eternity. Uh -huh. When someone mentioned to me that eternity can start now, 
Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be something only in the future. Here you're talking about to the age or forever, but it starts now. It seems to, yeah. That was the that uh, the Lord was addressing a current condition mm -hmm. to avoid a current potential. So the confusion for me for many years is what eternal means or meant was kind of like sometime way off in the way future. off. Yeah, then. exactly. But it could mean right now. And from a translation including. point, that that's that's not a legitimate assumption because the words that are used for it, Ayan and, and Olam, are also used to talk about things in the past that already have happened. And so it really, it really is more about a period of time than it is about a, a future time exclusively. And that's what you're getting at, which is absolutely right. So here's one. And I, this is my covenant with them, says Jehovah. My spirit is on thee. My words that I have put in your mouth depart not from thy mouth and from the mouth of thy seed and from the mouth of your seed, seed, saith Jehovah, from henceforth unto the age. And this is where, and, and the New American Standard says from now on forever. Okay. And so now I don't think that the Spirit's not going to be in our mouth forever. But this is the one that I first get an inkling that we're talking about a progressive period of time, a, a period of time that has variations in it, that can build on itself, as opposed to a finished block of time that goes on forever where everything's already done. This promise is going to go unto the age it's just a, it's a it's a subtle difference, but I think it can get big in certain in certain scriptures in certain places. Okay, so here's one in Daniel, and we're gonna this is we're gonna look at this scripture twice. Uh, this is a prophecy in, in Daniel twelve two, and the multitude of those sleeping in the dust of the ground do awake, some to life age during. This is it, uh, and some to reproaches and to abhorrence age during, and now. One thing I would, I would, uh, this is the word both times used as olam up in the top, uh, age during, age during. So, so, uh, the way David Bentley Hart translates the word aeonios, which is what is in the Septuagint for this one, is unto the age or in the age. And interestingly enough, uh, to the age is how Young's literal translated Olam the third time in these two verses. So the first one up here in two is age during life, age during abhorrence, age during. But when he gets down here, he translates it to the age. And then last week I pointed out that when in Hebrew they were seriously trying to emphasize that it is forever and ever, they added a second word, and that word is odd. A.D. Or, um, and, and so that's the case in verse 3. To the age and forever. So New American Standard translates that forever and ever. That is the sense that I, un I understand that. But the interesting thing about that is to imply forever and ever. When using the word olam, in most cases, to make sure that implication came across, you had to add the word odd forever and ever, to the age and ever. Okay? All that means is that you and I have permission to think about the words uh, in, the, in the Bible, like Olam and in the New Testament, Aeon and Aeonios. We have permission to think about them with their base meanings, their root meanings, which is age. 
And even though a lot of stuff gets translated the other way, um, it's it's okay to do that. You're not violating anything. Yes, sir. So this is this appears to show that the same word for life, some to life age during, and mm-hmm. some to report reproaches or to abhorrence age during. Mm-hmm. That means some. Let's say that we're using the word forever instead mm-hmm. of age during. So some to life forever and some to abhorrence forever. That's what it does seem to say when you translate that way, yeah. It does. That's why this is an important scripture. Okay, we'll get back to it. All right, here's another. Now we're in the New Testament and we're talking about the word aeonios, right? A familiar verse to all you guys and us. We've talked about it a lot. John 17, 1 through 3. How am I doing on time? John 17, 1 through 3. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to the sky, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so your son may glorify you. And just as you gave him the power of all flesh so that you have given everything to him that he might give them life in the age. Now, New American Standard translates that eternal life, right? Life in the age or eternal life. And this is life in the age. Living a really long time. No, that's not what it says. The characteristic defined by Jesus of life in the age is not longevity. It's knowing God. And being in a relationship with Him and knowing, gnoscoing, relationally being with Jesus. So, by nature, he defined eternal life, if you want to put it that way, as relational. It consists of a relationship. Now, does it last forever? Maybe. Probably. But is that the, is that the essence? Is that how you get to eternal life? You get to eternal life by living forever? No. You get to eternal life by knowing God by being in relationship with God. And it's an active knowing. It's not a passive knowing. It's not just that you prayed to prayer, if we want to translate it in modern terms. It's that you're knowing, you're living. And everybody knows it. Even even uh, people that are staunch grace reform the- theology people that, that uh, say this is all about grace, but you have to know Jesus. Why do they spend so much time trying to encourage you to behave? It's because in our gut we know that eternal life is not just punching a ticket and living a long time. It's being in relationship with the living God as your Father and with Jesus, His Son. Yes, sir, Greg. Um, I decided to look up the Hebrew on my smartphone of Genesis 3.22. It's amazing how consistent it is with what you just now said because the repeated word like they may become as one of us, the the concern that God and the council of heaven had, he might be hidden. In other words, mm-hmm. there was a desire for relationship and mm-hmm. that might go away. We don't want that. Yeah, that's so, the fundamental word for the fundamental root of Alam is a thing hidden. And uh, and it, it's it's related to time and seasons, ages. And so you say, you're right, Greg, that's it. All right. So then here's one. This is another one, a, a famous eternal life verse. Jesus, uh, John 3, 14 through 16. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so it's necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up, that everyone having faith in him might have the life of the age. 
Now think about that. Just let that phrase hit you. Jesus came so that you could have the life of the age. Now think back to the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age is more than bronze. And it's more than just that period of time. It's a time where one thing led to another. The bronze led to civilization. The bronze led to uh, agricultural advance. The, the bronze led to artistic expression. The discovery of bronze in the Bronze Age led to the building of the freaking pyramids. Not because they were made of bronze, but because the system could develop around the tools that could be created. Same with the agriculture. They didn't eat bronze. They ate grain. They ate crops that they could mass produce. They could mass cultivate. So there's a lot going on in the Bronze Age, and it's not, it's not a limiting expression. It's an expression that embraces a bunch of stuff. And if you can think of eternal life as embracing a bunch of stuff, more power to you. But if it's easier to think of, like the way N.T. Wright translates it in this passage, God's good age. Well, then I think, do that. For me, personally, for me personally, it it is easier to think of. Okay, now, this is a really critical set of verses, and this is the last slide we've got. It's the last that we've got to look at. And it's, it's the important verses upon which the concept and the expectation of heaven being dualistic and uh, split between eternal bliss and eternal conscious torment, it is based largely on this one verse. It's, it's this verse and the assumption about hell as eternal conscious torment that, that gives really honest people who love Jesus and love the Bible permission to lump in some really d- diverse things that he said into this one concept of this dualistic bliss in heaven, torment in hell. And, and uh, so then, then everything that consists of hell is outer darkness, turned over to the tormentors, lake of fire, uh, fires of Gehenna, Gehenna, all that. All those things make the composite expectation of hell. And then to be absent from the bodies present with the Lord, boom, that's bliss. Uh, There's no place in that theology for what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that every man's works are going to be tested by fire. Jesus said that. Paul explains that. Walking through, you're going to suffer loss, but you'll be saved through fire. There's no place in that theology to be saved through fire. So you ignore that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Or you've got to make it mean something else. And it's not because anybody's evil or wicked or, or dishonest, really. I, I used to think that that was the case, because I was kind of a chicken when it came to it. But it's just because of this kind of assumption. And I think one of the things that adds to that assumption is when we, when we use this verse. So, this is David Bailey Hart. And these will go to the chastening. He used that because Colossus is never ever in Greek used for permanent punitive punishment, like death penalty or anything. Okay? There's another word that's for that. 
um, in, into the chastening of that age, uh, but the just to the life of that age. So now you see how e- eternity is now defined like the Bronze Age is defined. It's, it's the next age, the age to come, the age we're going into. But it consists of a variety of things. It consists of some punishment. It consists of life. Are punishment and life direct, equal opposites? Only in a dualistic world. Unfortunately, it it was in Augustine's world. His case won the argument early in the Western Church when he said, if the life is eternal, the punishment has to be eternal too. But you wouldn't say that if you hadn't used the word eternal that already carried its own finished interpretation with it. If, if Augustine had dealt with, and I'm going to do a little bit more research to try not to misrepresent him in, in, in his thinking, because he's a brilliant guy, love God for sure, but the, the phrase in that age or into the age leaves room for there to be punishment that is different than life. Does it have to be the same length? No. Does it have to be for the opposite purpose? No. The, the dichotomy, the dualistic dichotomy isn't necessary, but the word eternity with its pre-built, just like the word hell, you don't have to explain what hell means to most people in Western Christianity. It has a full definition. So to try to talk them into the possibility that hell either might not be forever or that it's not just punitive, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible because the definition precludes it. And I've come to believe, and I don't want you guys laboring under this, suffering under it, that eternity has a similar, not as dramatic, but a similar danger. That it imports everything's finished forever. Everything's finished forever. And, I, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that. The words don't mean that. They mean there's an age. And you're right, Ronnie, that age can be engaged in now because the age doesn't define it. The thing defines it. And the thing is knowing God and knowing his son. See what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, Here's another one that doesn't use the word uh, aeon, but it creates a similar parallel, and you can see that it doesn't say that these two things are necessarily equal. Do not be amazed at this, for an hour is coming in which all those in the tombs will hear his voice, and those who have done good things will come forth into a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil things into a resurrection of judgment. Well, are life and judgment polar opposites? Are they dualistic, two sides of the same coin? No. This is judgment, that light has come into the world so that your deeds can be exposed, so that judgment can cause repentance in kindness, right? You can't make judgment and life opposites any more than it's legitimate to say that in the age to come, life and punishment are opposite. It's wrong. It's unnecessary. And, and, and then when I go back and I think, who's defining that age? Grace is the absolute epitome. The grace that we're living in right now, and we get it from God, right? It, it's the only place it can come from. 
Grace is the absolute, absolute epitome of things like patience and wooing and conviction. None of those are, none of those are, are real in any way in an absolutely dualistic black and white one thing or the other world. The young ruler walked away sad and disobeying. And how did Jesus respond? Oh my gosh, you're in the other side of the coin now. Anathema to you. No, he loved him. And then in John 12, he makes the incredible statement, if you don't do what I say, if you hear my words and don't do what I say, I'm not going to judge you because I didn't come to judge the world, the cosmos. I came to save it. What does that mean? Does that mean there's no judgment? No, there is judgment. It says so right there. A resurrection to judgment and a resurrection to life. Okay. Back to the Daniel passage. And this is just to let you know where my heart is on the thing. So back in here again, we're, we're still two in the age during thing. Uh, the words there, uh, um, reproaches is the, is the fundamental word that means shame. And the word abhorrence is the fundamental word that means, uh, well, I'll get to it in the next slide. There is one more slide I just remembered. And we're going to run out of time here pretty quick. Anyway, the, the New American Standard has everlasting for both of them. But the problem with the word everlasting is how flexible is the meaning of everlasting? To me, it's not flexible at all. It means the thing lasts forever. I mean, I don't understand what else it could mean. But into the age can contain whatever the age contains. Everlasting means whatever is going to last forever. That's a difference. It makes you think differently about it. All right. So these are the words. We don't have time to go through a lot. We've been through this a bunch. New American Standard says uh, everlasting life and uh, disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, see, this is something that if you want to live in the dualistic uh, heaven-hell, dualistic world, obviously contempt has to be part of hell, right? Shame has to be part of hell because it certainly doesn't fit in bliss. So that means if that's your world, if that's the world that we believe in, if that's Augustine's world, then that, that shame has to last forever, and that's what it says, everlasting contempt. But the idea of life in the age, or age during, and contempt in that age, that doesn't make contempt permanent. It doesn't have to. But it doesn't take the, the reality away from it. It's still rising to contempt. And so then scriptures in Revelation that make quite a bit of sense, uh, that could be confusing otherwise, is he's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. Or when Jesus talked about being turned over to the tormentors until you pay the last farthing, that starts to make some sense. That's part of getting rid of shame, part of getting rid of contempt, part of getting rid of that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, so here we go. Here's the comparison. And these will go into the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. 
These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. To me, I just want to encourage you, before you firm up your expectations about those kind of things or about when Jesus was saying he's going to separate the sheep and the goats and all this kind of stuff and, you know, enter into the joy of your Lord and, you know, uh, don't just give yourself permission to try to step away from the prepackaged definition of the word eternal. And, and you're not doing any violence to the language when you think in terms of the age or the age to come. Just give yourself permission to think about it and then, then ask the Lord, Lord, what is contempt like in the age to come? What does it create? What does it bring? What does life like in the age to come? What does that bring? Just ask him. And you're not violating anything by doing so. Yes, Dave. Is it a correct understanding that an age may come to an end? Absolutely, according to the words and the way they're used in the Bible. In other words, in ages past, that came to an end, right? Or the age that was used to describe how long I could be your servant because I'm not a Jew and you could have me as a servant. Okay. My lifetime defined the beginning and end of that age. But everlasting, would you... So everlasting is greater than an age because it's never-ending. It said. seems like the very word itself, the very translation itself, Correct. everlasting, I would agree with forces that. it all the way to the but end. What about, what about something like perpetual? That's the Similar? word that that's, that's, uh, some use of the slave situation because it seemed less everlasting, but it still means the same thing. But perpetual is one of the words that's translated, Olam is translated by, uh, okay. particularly in those sort of things that obviously can't go on forever, like a slave's life. They use the word perpetual in some translations. Okay, interesting. But, but uh, yeah, the point that I would totally agree with you, and I'm not saying that it's always wrong to translate it as forever, but forever means something. Everlasting only has one definition. It doesn't allow, everlasting things don't come to an end. Age-enduring things do come for an end, can come for an end. Do they have to? No. No, you might get hooked into an age that is defined by the goodness of God, and there's no reason for that age to stop. You might be in relationship. Oh my gosh, that's what age, the life of the age is called, a relationship with God. Is there any reason that we're going to get out of a relationship with the Father and with His Son? No. So, we're not, you know, we wouldn't be wrong saying everlasting or forever or eternal in that situation, but it doesn't mean the same thing for everything it includes. Yes, Janet. So do any of these words mean forever and ever? Like yes. going on? The combination of Olam Ad in the in the Old Testament does. It, it, and that, it, it specifically elevates the whole... You, you can come on out, honey. This is the last question. 
Yeah, tell Ola to come on out. Uh, and, and that was my point about Olam Odd, is it struck me that when they really needed it to mean forever and ever, they had to combine those two words. And in the Greek, there, there's similar instances. The age of ages, or age after age, is the way that word's used. And, and there are two words there. There's not one word. You don't just randomly make the word aeon translate into age after age. It's aeon to aeonios. And that, that, so there is a way to say forever and ever. And it applies in certain things, for sure. Like when you're talking about God or when you're talking about the, the, the endurance of forever, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Yes. So, so if I'm looking at the David Bentley Hart translation there compared to the American Standard, mm-hmm. it seems almost like the premier thing there is it's separating the uh, longevity or the nature of time in terms of an age from the chastening or punishment or the righteousness itself, but to the age itself. Is that, yeah, is that yeah. an incorrect way of reading that? Because, I mean, it would seem like if if you're reading those two translations there at the bottom, one would imply that that age might itself be never-ending, but not necessarily that the chastening of it that age be, itself Yeah, right, exactly. It, the, 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 the potential duration that is implied by Aeon, Arianius, yeah. depends on the nature of the thing it's defining. So then the entire, this could be the final never-ending age, so to speak, but it doesn't necessarily mean every single thing within that age has no end, as in, ma- in the same way that that age will have no end. Right. As okay. a matter of fact, it absolutely can mean that if you think about First Corinthians chapter 15, right? Because Jesus has to reign and reign until all the enemies are put in his feet. Now, that's not just currently, that's then too, in that age to come. And then... The end will come. He'll give the kingdom to his father and God will be all in all. So obviously there is an intermediate period, which is a part of the age to come. Jesus is reigning from heaven, et cetera, et cetera. So yes. So New American Standard might better say into the punishment of the eternal age or the righteousness of the eternal age rather than attributing eternality individually to each thing. You know, it, it would probably be a step in the right direction, but it would be actually implying there's two words there instead of just the one, which is aeon or aeonios. That's good, you guys. Thank you. You can cut this as short as you need. And if you need a ride home, you can get one of those, too. Thank you, guys. Yes. Hi, everybody. Um, So one thing I've been thinking about is if the verses that talk about um, in this age and in the age to come, basically that distinction. I used to always read that as this life and in the next, like on the other side of death or in heaven or, and, but now that that kind of opened up, I started thinking, well, what, what could that mean if both this age and the age to come could potentially be in this life? And I thought about things like 
I'm I'm currently unmarried. Um, I'd say the next stage for me might involve marriage, and there might be some things that have to burn off of me <laughs> to be successful in the next stage. And I might as well go ahead and start chopping off my hand now so that I don't lose my whole body in the age to come. Um, like there might be some transitions in this life that we can be prepared for um, if if we see that as being being ready for the next thing that God's doing on the earth. Is that is that a would you say that that's a valid reading of the idea of an age or is it longer time time scale than that? No, no, no. I, I would say that it, that is. Uh, and, and there are instances, like I say, the shortest use of the word olam, which fundamentally means age, uh, in the Old Testament is the three days that, that uh, Jonah spent in the belly of the whale. And so, yeah, I would say that. But I would also say that the concept of transformation could carry over into the age to come as well. There's no hard and fast rule that means that by the time we die, th- that there's no more potential for transformation. Or that the transformation that's promised at that time happens instantaneously before you experience the first moment of the next age. But so I would say, yes, that's, I would consider that a step in the right direction, being more honest to the concept of age. Interesting. So eternity in that sense would be more like a continuation of lots of transformations that happen throughout life and that just continues on. Think so, with special characteristics of no more deception, no more darkness, no more death, things like that. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but I'm saying that the concept can, can go there. I love it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, buddy.